Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my co-host, star of this show, Sal Marinello. This is the Hot Corner with Coach Sal. I have to apologize in advance for my voice. Long week of coaching this week, coming off the flu a little bit, but I'm going to play her today. If you can get by my voice, you'll hear Sal most of the day today. I'll, I'll try to make sure that I'm clear when I'm talking, but Sal, welcome back to your show. It's a weekend edition of uh, the Hot Corner. How's everything been going for you? Good morning. Great. Had a good, busy week. Um... We're having some severe weather up here in the Northeast, and actually for the first time I ever, in the middle of the night, got stuffing scared out of me. My phone went off for a tornado warning at 5 a.m., woke me out of a sound sleep. It was kind of scary, but uh, fortunately, at least from what I could tell, uh, it missed us and there was nothing of that nature, but uh, it was crazy. But uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm ready to go. It's a rare Sunday morning show for us. Uh, I don't know when you'll post it, but it, we're doing this Sunday morning. That's how dedicated we are to get these uh, shows out. Yeah, we'll, we'll post it this afternoon. We'll have the rest of Sunday to run and we'll be off this week with our shows. I'll be out of town uh, for the week. So this will run the whole week, Sal. So you'll get, the, you'll get the benefits of everybody tuning back in and finding Coach Sal at the top of the list. Nice. Week, as it should be, as it should be. So we uh, we talked last week that we were going to get heavy into training, but you, we brought up an interesting thing pre-show, and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I think it's important as kind of just to tie a loose end before we get into training. Certain drug that we talked about is causing, and I'll, and I'll say the words, causing some suicidal thoughts. Yeah, um, I mean, again, we, we not I, it, you don't have to be some kind of sage or fortune teller to know that these patterns continue a drug comes out, it's touted as being a fix, the miracle drug. It's amazing. It does things nothing's ever done. No one ever thought would be able to be done. And we could just go back to this, you know, to the turn of the millennium and and uh, think about several things that were of this nature. And now we have reports that um, the popular medications that were originally uh, for type 2 diabetes that are now being used for obesity, there's been some reports uh, small. It's a small number, but there's still. It's again. We've heard this again. It starts with a small number of people coming out and and making these side effects known, and then it, it blossoms or blooms into a bigger problem. But a small number of users are experiencing an increase in thoughts of suicide and self harm. So, again, just another warning, another check in the column of the skeptics to say, you know, when you read these stories and hear these stories about these drugs that are going to, quote, fix problems for you, let's not jump to these conclusions and let's not have everybody so willing to say, yeah, I'm going to take this because it's going to solve a problem for me rather than, as we've said from the beginning, Dave, addressing the cause, not a symptom. Yeah, and one, one, one thing causes another thing, and you can never know where you, you get to a point where you just can't get back to where you started. And the simple solutions sometimes are the easiest solution, and that's, you know, get out, move, exercise, eat the right way, pay attention to your body. And, of course, in this situation, we, we ask you to, to do your own homework on this. Don't just take our word for it, but please do your homework before you do stuff. So we, you had a trip. You were talking to me about lacrosse. The thing I found most interesting but not surprised by because you took a trip to watch some of the, the players that you train in lacrosse, you know, almost two hours away, weathered, weathered the storm, so to speak, what got through, back through bad weather. But halfway through that trip, what did you do um, for your, your mind and body? So I have, and people laugh because these chain gyms have a negative image, I guess, or people have a negative image of these chain gyms. And this isn't a plug in any way, right, Dave? We have no association with them, but I've belonged to Planet Fitness. Uh, about a year or so ago, I visited one down in Florida, and it was great. I it was, it was a local place. One of the things I've always done, Dave, is when I go on vacation, I love, I love going to local gyms because that's where you really get a sense of what the area is like where you're visiting. Even when I was a younger guy and, and went to Italy, 
took a two-week trip to Italy, Venice, Rome, and Florence. Every place I went, I sought out gyms. Uh, it doesn't matter where it is. Uh, and I always enjoy, even if it's a, day, a daily fee, that's a lot. So uh, the Planet Fitness offer, offers a, a great facility. They're all clean. They have this great, what's called the VIP package, whereas if you pay... I believe it's, I think I pay $25 a month. You can use any club and they have this VIP area, which is a lounge and has a massage chairs and what they call hydro massage loungers and tables. These hydro massagers are, it's like lying on a gel bed and it's hot water jets that shoot up through this and hit the bed. It doesn't get you wet and it runs up and down the length of your body from your heels to your upper back and neck. So you know, I had a tough drive. There's a lot of traffic to get up to Connecticut on Friday. And of course, there is a Planet Fitness nearby to where I need to go. And I stopped and did a good, short, but efficient workout, got in the massage chair, was able to shower, grab a bite and get on my way. So uh, I've done that on most of my road trips, whether it was to go watch my, my son play or to watch these guys play. There's always a uh, Planet Fitness locally that allows me to kind of recharge and and just keep me going. I think that's a good idea for anybody, though, especially if you're traveling, you're sitting for a long period of time and you've got to get up moving. But that sounds like you plan for it, um, which we would hope a lot of people would do. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, sometimes it's not even I don't even need to work out like this Friday. There was, uh, you know, you, you're sitting in the car for for two hours and there's a traffic pattern that's like you're going 20, 25 miles an hour, and then you have to jam on the brakes. And it was one of those things where you, it's tense, even though you're used to it, you're expecting it, and you, you kind of say, geez, I could use a break. And just, you know, sitting in that massage chair and uh, in the hydro bed, and it just relaxes and, rele and releases all the tension, and then you're, you're up and you're good to go. Yeah, and I, I kind of use that too, number one, <clears throat> you know, remind the audience that we don't just talk the talk we walk the walk but uh, to segue into our training i know we wanted to talk to the audience more about training this week uh, we got into a lot of the articles we, we were reading last week and we kind of tied it up with the first thing but uh let's slide into training now what, what kind of topics did you want to touch on today with training well with it's the season that we're going to start it's not quite football we're going to start seeing football and it's the season where we always are hearing or seeing instances of players cramping and doing certain things that result in cramps. And inevitably, the commentary is revolving around how they need to drink more water, get more water, get more Gatorade. And cramps do not come from dehydration. Cramps come from neuromuscular fatigue. And not to get into the whole mechanism, because that, again, is a show in itself, and it gets a little too deep in the weeds. But there is enough research, more than enough research, to, to indicate that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a, a fatigue factor and not a hydration factor. You know, with all the water and Gatorade these athletes drink, uh, if it was if it was Gatorade and water that prevented cramps, you'd never see a cramp. So it has nothing to do with dehydration. And training while going through dehydration, high level athletes, does that is that a separator? Well, everyone's dehydrated once they're high level. When the, if you're watching Wimbledon, Wimbledon happens to be on this morning. These players are operating in a state of some level of dehydration. And, and to, to get closer to the things you're interested in, Dave, as an ultra marathoner and certainly marathoners, the top level guys, they do not drink a lot of water. They, they actually are performing at a high level in a state of somewhat dehydration and that's what all athletes need to do and actually do because you cannot stay 100% hydrated when you're in, involved in a high level athletic event these the again to, to talk about the great example of a marathoner because I, I don't ever recall seeing a top level marathoner cramp in, in a race now I'm sure it's happened but doesn't happen anywhere near in proportion to what you see in football, uh, whether it's high school, college, or pro, especially earlier in the year, and especially when the weather kind of comes into play. Uh, I, I could 
tell you, I in my personal observation, I think a lot of the fatigue that is created that results in these calf, and mostly it's calves. I mean, the other thing you have to think of, most of these cramps, you see a guy go down, grabs his foot to try to pull it straight. Those are calf cramps. It's because of the nature of the, the foot action, especially you see in football, I'm going to go back to that, where not only are you flexing and extending, which is the action of bending and unbending your ankle as you run, jump, change direction, so on and so forth, but it's the nature of the push-pull that's involved also with these p- football players, all the physical activity that's involved with the force behind all those movements that you don't get a lot of reps in, in, in practice as much as you used to. So I think you're seeing, especially earlier in the year, a lot of these cramps occur just because these guys haven't had enough in that kind of, of, of range of activity and range of intensity. Yeah, so that's interesting because that's not the common thought, right? When you see somebody cramp up anywhere, whether it's belly, calf, um, right away you think they need more water. I heard it. We, we had baseball all week, and that's the immediate, not just of parents, but we had there was trainers on site saying the same thing, drink water. And I get the heat and whatnot, but um, take, take a baseball. I know you mentioned ultra. Take a baseball player out there in the heat. I'm getting ready to go see the Myrtle Beach Pelicans tonight play. It's going to be a hot one. Um, what kind of advice pre-game, during game, end game would you talk to a guy? Let's say about a calf or a hamstring. What kind of movement should they have been doing before? Well, it should be just right. if they're doing. And again, it's not to rebuild or build a program here, program here. But if you're doing the proper total body dynamic workout, uh, I'm sorry, dynamic warm up, or I call it preparation, uh, and you're doing that regularly. That's all you need to do. There's no and, – and, you know, these guys, it's not like you're taking them out of a, a temperate or, or a 40-degree, 50-degree climate and now putting them in a sweltering South Carolina environment and having them play. They're, 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 they're in this. The best way to get accustomed to it, acclimated to it, is to be in it. And, you know, it's the slow and steady. Again, if you build up to it, you can tolerate – quite a lot of stress and whether it's heat, whether it's cold, whether it's high level activity, whether it's marathon running, whether it's weightlifting or so on tennis as this, as the tennis is on. So that's the first thing you know, you shouldn't, you know, for guys that are playing in South Carolina baseball, the, the fact that it's going to be hot tonight shouldn't pose an issue. The other thing is if you're not eating and drinking all day, Pre-activity prep is not going to make up for it. We talked about this before on a show. Food is at least 80% water. So if you're eating appropriately, you're great. You're right on target to be able to keep yourself hydrated. If you're not eating enough, then you're behind the eight ball, so to speak, and you're never going to overcome that in the short term, and you're not going to easily overcome it even with just drinking. And the final piece of the puzzle, which, again, does not get enough report, is that all the research shows that when you drink to thirst, in other words, drink to satisfy your thirst, that's the best indicator of um, your mechanism. You don't need to force yourself to drink every 15 minutes. That's not necessarily going to fix the problem or address or, or, uh, I'm sorry, avoid the problem. If you drink to thirst and you have water on hand, then you're set. Yeah, that's and like all one water. other thing I got to tell you, I have to tell you is there's something called the rate of gastric emptying. So that sounds like a fancy, it is a fancy term, but basically what it means is how fast can your, can the liquid go from your stomach into your system to be used? And at high levels of activity, that rate of gastric emptying slows down. So in the, in the extreme cases where people get hypernutremia, which means you drink too much water, they're drinking more than their body can process. And it's happened. And more people have died in marathons from that than from being dehydrated. Again, it's the book Waterlogged by Dr. Tim Noakes. Top, I'm sorry, Dr. Tim Noakes that spells this all out. The rate of gastric emptying slows down because the body's other processes are taking control in this extreme environment so you could drink way faster than your body can use it which it becomes a detriment to performance 
and to your system in general. It's a great point. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, we, we get so concerned about not having enough water that you could actually drown yourself by drinking too much water. What was the, what was the terminology used? I know that the rate of gastric emptying, but yeah. what was it called when you drink, drink too much? It's hypernatremia, which basically is you have too much water in your system. And the scary thing is about that. Again, if you read the book by Dr. Noakes, it, it starts out <coughs> with the story of a woman who was a professional woman trained and ran the Boston Marathon and died from this overhydration. And what happens in in the overhydration, the symptoms are virtually identical to dehydration. So with everybody's pre-existing mindset that you're going to be this on the borderline of death dehydrated from, from doing a marathon, and then someone presents with these symptoms that are very close to what you would expect from a dehydrated person, they do the exact wrong thing for them. They give them more fluid, which throws their sodium balance way out of whack, which causes them to basically drown and die. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's something I think that um, you don't hear about it at all. You don't hear about it at all. You get people more fearful of them dropping because they just didn't get enough water. So I think the cramp, the spell and the myth about that, and then the uh, the book waterlogged. I think those are great points uh, for our audience, especially this time of year. We're getting in the dog days of, of August soon, so and, and uh, not to you know, and there is you have to recognize the difference between a kid say say in your in your climate. Let's take your climate, and actually, you know, one of the jokes I have with some of my friends here is go to Florida in the summer, and people in my area, right? I I can't tell you how many people almost the first response or. I would say almost everybody, whether it was their first response or not, you tell them you're going to Florida or South Carolina and their response is, oh, it's hot there in the summer. Well, meanwhile, we've had days here of 85, 86 degrees with 90% relative humidity and it's brutal here. So it's, it's funny to me, but if you were to take a baseball player in your climate versus a lacrosse player, soccer player, there's still different requirements. The baseball player is mostly sedentary, comparable to a soccer player, lacrosse player, field hockey, if that's going on at this time of year. You're running up and down the field. It's completely different. So there might be, not there might be, there's probably a little higher requirement, especially on the preparatory side, for the for the field sport athlete in your climate. You know, the, the great thing about baseball is you get the breaks between innings, you get in the dugout, you get some shade, you get to sit. In field sports, most of these games are being played, obviously, outdoors, and they don't have the ability to go indoors. And when you're not playing, you're still you're out there standing on the field. You know, even at some very, you know, it's in a lot of college situations, the team will stay out on the field in uh, the time between quarters, certainly, and the time between halves. So that's a big difference, especially in your climate. Yeah. So talking about the field sports, there's prep stuff. And we touched touch a little bit on more on the prep before, because like everything we talk about, the pre-work is where you've got to get it done. But then I want to go deep into, okay, let's say we got it done. What can we do in-game to, if, if there's no dugout to go into, to help these kids or these adults, whoever's playing, maintain the proper hydration, but not overload it, not waterlog them. And what kind of nutrition can happen during the game or, you know, how how do we get shade? How do we, you know, get them out of that sun? Well, I know in the, in the summer, in the lacrosse and soccer summer tournament circuit, you know, parents and clubs have tents. They bring tents so that in between games, the kids can obviously get a load off and that everyone brings their lawn chairs and sits under these tents, which is great. And there have been tournaments I've attended where they allow the tents on the sideline because it's brutal. And they know these kids are playing three games on a, on a Saturday like that, and they need some break, and they're not getting it. There's no locker rooms at these facilities. Whereas a college game, that's one of the great things even about college lacrosse. It, it, and you could set your watch by it. You're done in two hours. And that's with the half hour uh, – I'm sorry, halftime where they are allowed to get a brief respite from the – environment if it if it in fact is a problem you know that's one of the other myths about not myths but misconceptions about lacrosse in college it's basically a winter sport Dave, because they start middle of january 
And by the time the weather warms up, unless you're a down south team and there's not all that many teams down in the south that the weather is that much better, uh, obviously you have a few teams. You have Jacksonville and Florida. There's more teams in the south as we move forward. But the majority of the games are being played up here in almost winter conditions. So <clears throat> this is more for the young kid, the, this concern about – the, the weather and the shade. But again, if you're not eating and drinking normally, regularly throughout the day, throughout your weekly uh, routine, getting to a, a tournament on a Friday night and having a game the first thing in the morning, Saturday, where you're already a little depleted because maybe you haven't had a good dinner. You maybe you didn't drink what you were supposed to drink water-wise. You're drinking soda or other things, Gatorade. That, that Those are the things you have to avoid. If you're doing things kind of on a regular schedule, and like I said, drink, if you're thirsty, drink, you're probably fixing it. And then the whole thing about what to eat uh, during a, during a tournament or during this kind of competition, I think a lot of it is personal preference. It's what you can tolerate. You know, you don't want to eat garbage, sugary, high sugar foods. That's another misnomer that you need to load yourself with carbohydrates for fuel. If you eat balanced during the course of the week and during your training, your body is going to be able to fuel itself. They've even done studies with high uh, aerobic component sports or marathoners where if they're adjusted to a, a ketogenic diet, they don't have any problems self-fueling because of the fact that you could, your body could store more fuel in the form of fat than you can actually ingest in, uh, in carbohydrates in the same period of time. So it, again, it all, it all, it all is long-term preparation, Dave. It's not like, Hey, the weekend's coming up. I have to start drinking and eating for the the weekend. You have to do it. You know, we have to have that consistency. And that's the premise of your show. We're trying to get people to adopt a way of life and it doesn't have to be our way, but have a way. You can't cram for the exam. As you're saying, you got a game Saturday. Let's start prep for it Friday night. It's every day, all day. That's the way you live. Like that's why I brought up the point of you traveling to you. That was second nature. It's what you do. It's who you are. Right. It's part of your, your normal day. So you do it. And that's audience. That's kind of what we're trying to get you in the habits of. I know we throw a lot of information at you. Grab on to what's important to you. But if there's a theme, a thread that goes throughout all of our stuff, you got to develop habits. You got to develop patterns, healthy habits, healthy patterns, mentally, physically. And that has to be the way you live Monday through Sunday. And that way, when you do have something like what Sal's talking about, an event, there's, there's no, if there is an issue, it's now easily traced back to who you are instead of randomness uh, based on what you did. Like we said, uh, cramming for the exam the night before. That, that's a great analogy. When when I coached uh, lacrosse at uh, the Division One level, and we had to take some pretty long bus trips, the head coach, who was a, a great friend of mine, we still work together, do things together. He always listened to me from when we started together in high school. When we used to build in time on our long bus bus trips, we went to VMI, we went to University of North Carolina, we'd go up north, Vermont, Providence. Those were all five, six plus hour bus trips, we would take time uh, halfway or so through, get out of the bus, walk, do a dynamic 10 minute dynamic stretch routine. Not no, you know, nothing more dramatic than a series, five or six minutes of total body movement kind of stretches, uh, mobility work and have them eat a quick meal and get them back on the bus. And that made a big difference instead of sitting on the bus for six hours, six and a half hours, or worse, and getting out and then trying to do something. So uh, the little things like that can make a huge difference. For, for parents who are taking their kids, sometimes it's it's an added expense to go down Friday night instead of waking up at the, the crack of dawn Saturday to get there for a, an 8 or 9 o'clock game. We've all done that. But you know what? There's a lot to be said for, for getting to the place the night before, allowing time for a meal, getting up at a more reasonable hour, and getting the body ready to go out and run around it at high levels at nine o'clock in the morning. So you know, it might be difficult. I know it's a hardship. I did it. I did it with three boys and with twins, but when I could, we would stay the night before, uh, especially if it was going to make us have to get up at some ridiculous hour, like people do 5.00 AM, 6.00 AM to get somewhere for a, a nine or 10 o'clock game. You know, we tried that uh, one tournament ago with our teams. Again, get into cost saving for families and whatnot. And it was not too far away, Charleston, uh, still an hour and a half in the car one way. 
And I, I saw it affect our performance. Um, cramping occurred, probably sitting too long in cars. Um, you know, I saw performance die a little bit. I don't think we were as sharp as we normally are. But um, there, there's credence to that audience. You know, that, that night before, that good night's sleep, that, you know, making your routine on the road as similar as it is at home, even though it's not your bed, you know, you're still still getting a good night's sleep somewhere. Uh, the night before. So I like that's a great point because you talk about sleep on shows as well. Um, what, what's, and if you want to segue back, that's, that's fine. But as we're talking about, you know, the heat, the food, the nutrition, bring it back to sleep right now, as you touched on it. How well, important I'm glad is you that? that up. I, I wanted to bring up something I know we've spoken about on one of the shows, uh, one of the conf- uh, coaching conferences, uh, that I used to go to regularly was a uh, international flavor. It had an international flavor. We had a lot of high-level coaches, Olympic, World Cup, international team-level coaches. And one year we had the strength coach from an Australian rules uh, – I'm sorry, an Australian rugby team. And he was great because he obviously had the performance side down. But what what they do in that in that league in Australia – they have their – and they play similar to the NFL. They play once a week on a weekend. They have the three middle – I believe it's the three nights in the middle of the week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, where they house all of their players. They feed all of their players. They have practices, meetings, and they sleep there because their research showed that those were the three nights that were the most important uh, to be rested and fed and prepared for the weekend game. So – as opposed to our NFL teams that don't house them once training camp closes. I thought it was a really interesting concept, and they did a great job of tracking the players' performance and tracking their sleep patterns. They have a lot of self-assessment tools that they use to ask the players how they slept various places on the road, uh, they made a lot of adjustments to that. And it, it's awesome because, you know, our sports, our, I think our coaching me- methods here, we might, the coaches micromanage every element of a player's uh, preparation. And I, I mean from a standpoint of maybe not listening to the players individually enough to see how they're responding to certain things. And I know in speaking to some of my players that have played some high-level D1 sports, they feel that same thing. They feel like they're, it's a one-way street as far as feedback. You have these cookie-cutter lifting programs, cookie-cutter conditioning programs, and there's very little customization, which is, is really ridiculous because everybody is different. So I, I think that's an interesting way to look at it because they found that those were the three nights that were most important, and then they'd let their family – they'd let the players go home after the game. They'd get a night or two there. And then they'd get a night or two. I think they got maybe even a night before the game. They let them sleep at home. Uh, uh, so it was an interesting, uh, an in- interesting thought. And I think it would be interesting to see that done here. Yeah, it's, it's, I had never thought about that myself, to be honest. Um, so the couple nights after the game, they would go back to their house. Yeah, they they'd go home. Say say they played on Saturday. They'd go home Saturday night. They'd go home Sunday night. They'd come in for practice, and I, I I know it was the three days in the middle of the week, so I think it depended on when they played and how it worked out, but I believe it was something along those lines. There were three nights that they had identified as the most important days and nights for sleep, obviously, and that that's what they even have said. One of the things I've known even before I heard that is it was the night, it was the, I guess you would say the penultimate night before your competition is the most important for sleep. So if you were to play on a Saturday, the Thursday night was the real night. Make sure you got sleep because that Friday night, you might be a little amped up for the game. And, you know, so if you don't get your eight hours or whatever it is you would need, if you got that on the Thursday and still were able to get a decent night's sleep the night before the game or got decent night's sleep in a lead up to that night before the game, you were still okay. So I think that's that's super important. So just kind of taking back for the audience. So Saturday game, Thursday night's the night, and then the other two nights would be Saturday night after the game and Sunday night after the game. Yeah. Okay. I like that. That's good. And stuff. I think sometimes the exhaustion takes over after a game, so it almost doesn't matter. 
where where you are. You know, yeah. I know we've had we had my my boys last summer of summer lacrosse. They had some amazing uh, schedules where they played three or four games on a hot day with a, a a thin roster. So these you're getting a ton of reps. We could have slept on bedrock and they would have fallen asleep. You know that. So that a lot of times you'll sleep just because you just don't have anything left in the tank physically or mentally. But as a rule, those other nights of the week are kind of tough sometimes with other factors. So, yeah. and, and you know, I wanted to talk uh, real quickly. Uh, I don't know if we're going to move off of this, but in addition to the cramp issue, I think there's something else going on. And I think it has to do with footwear. And I know there's been research done in the soccer space with cleats and the incidence of ACL injuries in these non-contact injuries and what kind of shoes these players were wearing when they suffered these non-contact injuries. And inevitably, or invariably, whichever is the better word to use, the findings were the cleats that had more of a traditional cleat long and got depth into the turf and now some of these shoes even have what they call a blade kind of construction or design to these cleats where it is a rounded it's a rounded cleat that goes out along the heel of the shoe and then around the, the front part of the shoe those shoes result in more injuries than the traditional turf shoes which are the nubby kind of uniform bottom very short but numerous numerous cleats along the entire bottom of the shoe, shorter nubby cleats on the bottom of the shoe. And what I've recommended all my all my clients get is to get that shoe and practice and use that shoe as much as you can because the more you use that shoe versus the cleat shoe, it'll actually be better to strengthen your feet, ankles, and lower leg. And you know we've talked a lot about how we have problems with ankles and, and feet, and that's why we have a lot of injuries. That uh, I think that's a, a great idea for parents who have kids that play field sports to get that kind of turf shoe bottom instead of the cleat shoe bottom. Because I think, again, the the added contact or added grip that those cleats give your foot on turf can also contribute to those calf cramps. Interesting. Yeah, because on turf a lot, they'll, and the, the kids like, and this is for baseball too, because baseball has moved a little bit to turf, um, especially in the north where all you got to do is, you know, vacuum it if it rains and plow it if it snows and down south same thing with all the different weather down here kids will be allowed to use molded cleats or they could use turfs and you're recommending that they would do that as well uh, use turfs yeah turf shoes, I, flat I, I think over time and over time it'll help to strengthen that lower leg so i think i think that and, and what they recommend you do and i've done it it's amazing if you if anyone out there is listening and dave you do it if you have a a traditional kind of cleat shoe and you have the ability to go out onto a uh, artificial turf field, put your hand in the shoe like it's a foot, and press that shoe into the turf, and then try to pivot the shoe. And you won't believe what it feels like in your elbow. So think about you're doing it at a very slow rate with really not even any movement and not all your body weight on it, and it puts that much stress on your elbow both ways of rotation. Imagine what that's going to do when you're moving at a high speed and it's your foot in the ground and you're cutting and you're changing direction rapidly, aggressively, spontaneously. Interesting. I know with, with baseball, it kind of goes half and half with kids. I've never promoted one or the other, but I think I will now um, as, as I'm hearing you say this with soccer, lacrosse, um, I guess we can push softball into the baseball category. Are kids using molded cleats on those type of sports as well? Or are they, is it such a, is, it, is this an issue with deciding between those two? Or do they use I, mostly? I think, sorry, I, I think it's soccer, for sure, soccer and uh, lacrosse, because I'm not, I know we have some artificial turf baseball fields here. I, I don't know how prevalent they are. Baseball, I don't get to see as much as obviously those other two sports. You would probably have a better idea. I'm imagining you're still playing a lot on grass. But I, I, you know, I would think you'd want to have a couple of pairs. You're not, you know, you're talking about something that's pretty integral to your performance. So to have a couple of pairs of shoes is not ridiculous. I know those, I know the very good pair of turf shoes I got my boys were only, not only, but not that everyone has that money to throw around, were 80 bucks. So 
it, it's worth it. I think it's worth it. And yeah. also, you don't wear out the, the one pair. If you have only one pair of shoes and, and you're just wearing them, you're going to wear that pair out much quicker than if you have a couple of pairs you can uh, rotate through. Yeah, and, and I don't know if the other sports use. I know baseball. So, like, we played this past week. We played on re- regular traditional baseball fields where there's grass, you know, dirt in the right spots where kids were allowed to use metal because of the, you know, the age. So they had the metal. We also played on ones that were – uh, recommended that we use molded cleats. Um, and then what's interesting is th- there's a lot of turf areas on baseball fields that even have just that, where whether it's in the batting cage, sometimes in the bullpen area, where they ask kids to wear uh, turfs. So it's a kid could be wearing three different kinds of shoes over the course of preparation for one game, you know, within an hour and a half time frame of one another. Is that, you know, dangerous to a kid or is it not really? No, I mean, I think if you're used to that, if that's just how how things go, I, I don't think it's a problem. I think the bigger problem is these kids play everything on this uniform, perfectly flat surface all the time without divots and ruts. And like in the old school where you play, I'm sure you played on some baseball fields, Dave, that the outfields were like a cow pasture. But, you, you know, you dealt with it. You dealt with the... You dealt with the bad hops. You dealt with the uneven footing, and at the end of the day, you were fine from it. I, you know, that I had grew up that way. I, I've seen it in the lacrosse space where, when lacrosse started, when I started with it 25 years ago, most fields were still grass, and you dealt with it. Now, if you ask if, if you ask these kids to play on grass fields, it's at, like you're asking them to play on the surface of the sun because it's much harder. It's much harder to pick up a ground ball. It's much harder to contend with the footing. So that is all, again, another example going back to how you prepare. If If you're used to all these different surfaces and you're able to deal with it, then that's fine. You know, you're again, you're not going to take a kid out all of a sudden and put him on some kind of surface he's never played on before. Yeah, and it's what's funny about you mentioned the different surfaces and terrains, and you brought up ultra marathons early on with me. That was something I had to get used to, but it was it brought me back to my childhood where you're running on flat ground, uh, cement, dirt, rocks, uh, sometimes running through a stream, and uh, it takes your ankle and your knees any which way, any which direction, and if you're not prepared for that. Um, you're going to get hurt. I remember people warning me before I did it. I did it at the ripe old age of, I think it was 44, 45 when I ran my first one. And uh, I was prepared for it because I had, I had run and played and I still like with my kids, we get out there and play. Um, but yeah, I'd recommend adult or young. If you're going to do that, make sure that your foot and your ankle and your knees and your hips are all prepared to hit every kind of terrain possible. You know, albeit baseball, like we said, cow pastures weren't uncommon when we were kids. Uh, nowadays, these fields are so manicured uh, for these guys. I don't think that their bodies are used to anything that's alternative, as, as we're talking. No, yeah, the, the leg, the lower leg is weaker because the, it, it doesn't have to contend with that uneven surface, which requires a lot of strength and stability, which the foot is built to to withstand. I mean, the foot is a great marvel of engineering and how it's built. And, you know, again, we could go into – a whole show about the problems that athletes have had with feet and ankles since the advent of these fancy shoes. And, you know, are we really any better for it? How have we talked about, I've talked about it on my Instagram. I don't know how much I've talked about it on the show with uh, training barefoot, but I've been doing that all summer. I was out yesterday on the turf here in uh, a hot day with socks on because the, you, some places, if you don't have grass to get on, you have to go on field turf, and the field turf is way hotter. You can't wear bare feet. It'll burn your feet. So I wear socks and bring out a towel so I could stand on that if I need to. But it's really great for your foot and ankle. Uh, and actually, my ankles have gotten better, believe it or not, uh, over time because I think I've done so much of that. Why hasn't there been more of an – I don't know. Well, I'll use the word attack, but people can draw it back um, and excuse my – extreme language on it, but why hasn't there been more of an examination on the shoe industry with all the recent, you know, there's been more ACL injuries. There's more ACL injuries now than there were when I would say when we were younger and, 
we talk about pitching all the time on our other shows, you know, that with all this training and whatnot, there's more Tommy John surgeries than ever before. So with, with the knees, why is, why is there not more of an examination of the shoe industry or maybe we shouldn't, I don't know. Well, I think again, just like in anything, whether it's politics, public health, athletics, follow the money. What, where's the money to be made in a shoe that you could sell for 50 bucks versus some of these obscene and again I'm, I'm a capitalist if you could get six hundred and seventy dollars for a pair of shoes two hundred dollars for shoes great but you don't need to you don't need it Bill Russell played will Chamberlain played in Converse in high tops did it seem to affect them I don't recall them having a lot of time missed for injuries of uh, soft tissue and or worse so there, there's not much money to be made in, uh, let's see, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for, in, in uh, reducing the level of complexity in either footwear. Again, I know the NFL teams, the, the players union has said we need to get off of artificial turf. So that that's a big part of it. They're, they're at least addressing pr- probably the bigger part of the problem in that regard, at least for football and other field sports. So that's good. Well, what's what's funny, and I take that same premise, that's a good point. In baseball, they used to try to build speed teams on turf. So if you remember the Cardinals back in the 80s with Willie McGee, Vince Coleman, Ozzie Smith, I mean, those guys were built for speed. Andy Van Slyke was their power guy, and he was, you know, not a traditional power guy. He had wheels and center. But um, as we've evolved from that turf, you know, gotten into the 90s and the 2000s now, uh, speed guys will be vocal about it, that they see their careers. I think Jose Reyes was one when he had to go to Toronto, I believe, was not excited about it because the lower body injuries that he felt occurs on speed guys, that that's his money, um, you know, as they move to a turf game. So there's some, there may be something to that. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt. And you know, it's funny you bring up Jose Reyes. I have a good friend of mine, and ever since we were kids, when we were, you know, 13, 14, 15, at night, we would do what we did in the summer or even during the year and hang out, and we had the baseball almanac. We used to go over stats, and now we're in our 60s, and thanks to the internet, you have all those stats available on your phone. We were texting last night about, in particular, doubles and triples leaders and how, in, in as a 60-year-old in my lifetime, if you look at the top triples seasons and career triples leaders i've only seen two of the top 60 triples guys play so if you go and look at the top career hitters of triples in my lifetime i've only seen two players of those 60 and actually i think it's even goes deeper the reason i stopped at 60 is number 56 was willie wilson who is a legendary athlete from my area of new jersey who i grew up as a kid watching but of the of the top sixty, I believe Willie Wilson was actually fifty six. He was fifty sixth all time, and Roberto Clemente was, I believe, somewhere in the twenties of all times in triples. All those triples leaders were back in the days of, you know, even before Babe Ruth. So it's just interesting, and I think your comment about the turf it makes it much harder uh, on these guys' bodies to to run and do the things they do. And I, I just don't think they care as much about the triple, but I just think it's it's a, a stark comparison to think about how many home runs we've seen hit in baseball, and yet you don't see any triples. Yeah, and do you think so? The turf? Do you think it's the footwear? Do you think it's the surface, or do you I think, think it's, it's the foundation? surface? I think it's the surface, and all problems then follow from that. I think yeah, if you had better, I think you're always going to have problems on the turf because of it's not softer than grass. If anyone has spent a lot of time coaching on turf, your your muscle, your body aches even just being out there. I don't care what anybody says. I've done it now for 25-plus years. There's a, a difference when you're standing on turf all day versus when you're standing on grass. It's much hotter on turf because of the underlying, I think, material and the nature of the that surface. It absorbs heat. So... I think there's a lot of negatives to it. I think the positive is it's resilient. I think the negatives are it beats the heck out of the athletes. Yeah. And 
again, I may be late in the show here. I'm taking us off into uh, right field, pardon the pun, but it's on turf though. I saw an episode, this is probably two or three years ago, where they did a study about turf because they used the little, is it like tire parts inside the- Yeah, it was and, originally ground up tire parts. Yeah. Now, I don't know if they progressed to that, from that, but- But they were doing a study about goalies um, and cancer and attributing it to ingesting that material as they went and were moving off the lower body and back into disease now, but ingesting that material, obviously involuntarily because they're, you know, they're uh, not looking at to breathe it in, but they're diving, they're on the ground. I would think, you know, other, if it's baseball, you're, you know, if you're diving, it's also going to do it. But, but I, I don't know if you've seen anything about that or have any thoughts on that. I have not. And I, you know, I have to, you know, you have to look at those studies ingesting that would, if you're actually talking about swallowing it, you'd have to swallow a hell of a lot of uh, rubber pellets, and I think you'd, you'd have a, have you you've had you would have other digestive problems if it was that much you were getting into your system, especially kids. I'd, I'd have to look at that. I'd have to look at that study. Yeah, they and again, it's like all other studies. You have to you you know take it with a grain of salt. A lot of these studies that we see, especially now, and I caution the audience, especially the one I brought up, if you want to look at it, I'll put it in the show notes, but um, they tend to have a an end in mind and they create the study to justify the end in mind. So I don't know if this was one of them. I found it kind of ironic. It was in one location. So it could have been factors like, you know, 5G towers. It could have been the way they eat in the community or whatever it may be, but it was, it was the goalie position. And it was turf. There was a lot of common factors. So, but again, you know, it doesn't always just because there's a lot of common factors doesn't mean that's the no. actual. Well, here's the, since we uh, to get back to a little, I just am curious to get your opinion. We talked about the the, the surface and the the Darth of triples. How about stolen bases? Do you would you attribute that to the to the wear and tear on the body too on these artificial surfaces? Do you think Willie? Uh, I'm sorry. Do you think Ricky <laughs> Henderson could have? stolen all those bases with the wear and tear that this turf puts on the body versus the natural surfaces that he played on? You know, I didn't have much experience as a player on turf, but, you know, I've I've played on it enough to know that there is dirt as you get close to the bags, but with the speed you're running, the length of the dirt part, does not coincide with the start of the slide for the most part. So a yeah. part of your slide, if you're doing it the right way, is going to be on that hard turf. Um, and it's going to, it's going to hurt your body and they have to level the dirt off to match the turf. So the turf being flush to the ground, the dirt's not enough of a cushion to feel good either, as opposed to the right. grass where, you know, if you're playing on grass, the whole base path is dirt. And, uh, you know, it's a much, much easier slide. I think, I think you're seeing a lot of, youth sports now being played on turf and because of economics and combining fields and whatnot. And I do think that's a trickle down effect with, with sliding. Kids don't know how to slide anymore. They don't want to slide because it's like sliding on pavement for the most part. But back to Henderson, I think, um, boy, it's hard to say he would do have done better on turf with averaging hundred steals a game, you know, cause people would say, well, it's faster. He would, you know, he'd be much easier than running on dirt. I do agree in that, but I, I do think the, the wear and tear of his body would have made him be a little bit more selective if, it, if the most of his games were on turf because that, that hurts. It, it hurts your hips. I mean, you come up with there's not, there's not enough padding you can put on uh, to protect. And even if you do protect against the burns, the impact um, will get you. But sliding is a lost art. People aren't people aren't teaching that the right way anymore. No, of course. Because so, again, I think everyone wants to hit the home run, and I think why you don't get triples is you want the stand up double, and no one's going to stretch it to slide and maybe get thrown out of third. Yeah. And the dimensions of parks are smaller now because they want the home run and that the, you know, if you look at the triples guys, uh, you know, their speed with it for the most part, you get guys that weren't super speed, but triples come with, you get speed and usually happen in parks that have deep dimensions in the, in the gaps in the alleys. Uh, like Minnesota had that for a while. I think Chuck Knobloch had a run of doubles and triples when he was with them as well. But yeah, when you have those deep gaps, the guys with wheels uh, that can't hit it out, 
are uh, are going to get them. But yeah, the parks have been all brought in, so that way the home run can be highlighted. That's a great point. Yeah, that's and, a great uh, point. There. Don't those, see it anymore. those those old fields in Cleveland and Yankee Stadium and Detroit uh, that had that endless gap, and some of those places were ridiculous distances to center field and and to the power gaps were ridiculously far. Yeah. And I remember there was, geez, I'm trying to think the, and you, you're a Mets fan, the Glens Falls used to have, and I think they used to be the Tigers, the Mets, uh, they're a minor league club. I, I played a few games in that stadium and I, I liked it because it was an alley for triples. And I think I probably had most of my triples when I played there, but it also hurt a player like me who didn't have power because it was so darn deep that the outfield would play even more shallow because they're like, Hey, if you hit it over my head, it's over. Um, they, they had to, there was much there were much less gaps for my singles but more gaps for my triples if that makes any sense yeah no that, totally. that type of field but yeah they had weird dimension the ones who had the weird dimensions were all of a sudden the outfield went out at a sharp angle and there was a little hill up there and you know just for whatever reason they built these unique parks nowadays they're all cookie cutter and uh you know they're built to make sure everybody you get 40 50 home runs in there and everybody gets 20 and that's the state of the game now so but I like the triple it's a lost art I'm glad you brought it yeah. up I miss it. Well, I think I think um, when my buddy and I were talking about it, the the triple leader in the NL last year had five, and Otani led the AL and led the majors, and he had six. So, yeah, in, in my lifetime, that the I remember, you know, Jose Reyes for the Mets was a big triples guy. He had a, a pretty good run there. Actually, I was shocked to see a guy like Curtis Granderson had the most triples that would have occurred in my time of watching baseball. He had twenty six triples. Uh, in the early 2000s, and George Brett was the only other one had 20 or more. He had 20 at one point, which shocked me because I always knew he was a great hitter. I just don't remember him having that kind of uh, speed to get 20 triples. Who's that, George Brett? George Brett, yeah, that was a that kind of was an interesting stat yeah. to me. It could be longevity too. He played the whole decade um, for the most part. Yeah, but he, I mean, 20 in a season—that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, no, it like is. I said, no one's- no one's coming. No one's. No one's going to sniff twenty triples in a season again. No, so, that, that was one of those unique parks too, the, the Kansas City. That's true. Yeah, he had a big, big but Granderson so, surprises me too. That's he, he wasn't. He was a decent. He was a twenty twenty guy. Twenty steals, twenty homers. Um, good speed. Well, so maybe, maybe it's effort. Maybe it's these guys. You know that it's that effort of coming out of the box those first twenty yards, full speed, and challenging the challenging to throw I mean that's you know you you'd almost think this the time was right now your point about the ballparks being smaller probably makes that more difficult but with the we've talked about it on the show with the other guys from the beginning about the the sloppiness of the fundamental involved with relay uh the, the relay throw and all that stuff that now would be the time to to try to hit that you know with guys who are so athletic and fast now Make that guy make the extra throw, but you got to come out of the box hard. That's the problem. We talk about guys don't want to sprint. Yeah, that's with all sports. That's a great, that's an outstanding observation. We hit on whether it's basketball, baseball. I'm sure it applies to the other sports, like when you're talking about transition. So when you're a hitter, those first three steps, when you watch guys come out of the box hard on the first three steps, like a sprinter, they're low, they're hard. Um, There's no hesitation. The guys that get to those first three steps, the best, those are the guys that are going to be the doubles guys because they're coming out of the box hard, thinking double. It's a mentality. And, and probably that thinking double leads them into more triples. Um, and you watch how they come around first base. The, the, you see guys now, even on the single, the old Pete Rose run where he'd come around hard, he'd get about a third of the way down the, uh, for, between first and second base, and he'd be sitting on that front leg almost waiting for somebody to bobble it. Um, the guys that come out of the box thinking double, and you're probably right with George Brett. He was one of those guys too. That's probably why he had those a lot of those triples. And yeah. he was a line drive gap to gap hitter, which is where triples triples are born in those gaps. Yeah. Well, good deal. Well, almost an hour now. We we, we go. What, what do you, what do you got left for the audience here today? Well, there's a couple of things I wanted to get to, but I think uh, we'll again. I wanted to talk about the idea of distal loading versus proximal loading, and it sounds like it's something complicated, but it really doesn't have to be. And We'll get into that. We'll get into that in the next show. Uh, and we'll talk about a good way of uh, improving your flexibility. And it's not just regular stretching. It, there's some trigger point work we could talk about and the concept of instead of trying to stretch a muscle that is 
like your typical calf, since we were talking about calves, that's a big focus of mine. Instead of trying to do the old school calf stretch and because of the construction of the muscle, you can stretch it in such a way that you're lengthening, lengthening it to try to stretch it. There's a concept that these muscles have trigger points that are, for lack of a better term, let's call it a knot. And rather than trying to stretch it by lengthening it, you're trying to stretch it by applying pressure to that that knot, which is going to release and re- and relax that entire muscle and the joint and joints that they're responsible for acting across. So we're going to talk about that next week. So, but you have to put that on your big legal pad of notes so that we don't get far from that. I got it right on top right now, just as you're doing it, because I remember us talking about last show, and I had it on there with distal and proximal. So audience, we're not teasing you. We'll get to that next time, I promise. And you would ask about the whole concept of ankle weights. So that's ankle weights and holding weights while walking and doing things, uh, high rep, long duration. Those, that's where we'll start with that because that's the, the best example of where people can understand what proximal loading is. Proximal loading is, I'm sorry, distal loading is far from the, the center. So your hand weights and your ankle weights they're basically as far as you could get from the center of your body and the center of action. So we're going to talk about that. And then we had, you, it got brought up by us chatting about the weighted vests, right? That's more proximal. That's proximal because that's, that's the best example of proximal loading. Yeah. But really barbell and dumbbell work is distal loading. So again, we could, we could talk about where it starts to become uh, a negative, where it starts to become a positive and, and actually bring up some concepts that really I don't see discussed other places, but that I've been doing and talking about with some of my colleagues and, and uh, we could get into the, into the weeds on that a little bit. Okay. Well, I think, uh, I, I, yeah, I think that'll be great topics. I think those are, those are definitely two that are part of my world personally right now with, with our kids growing and the teams we're involved with. And it's part of our generation, right? The ankle weight, the, whether you're an athlete or, you know, you used to see that with the aerobics people out there, right? They had all the ankle and wrist weights jumping around on there. When the, I was uh, a kid, that's how they told you you were going to jump higher, which yeah. is, couldn't be further from the truth. So, Oh, and then the, uh, and don't ever fall asleep with your ankle weights on. They wake up with a bloody nose. I did that one time. Stops <laughs> the blood a, flow. But, I'm sure uh, that's an interesting story. <laughs> I'll save that for a show off the air. Yeah. Really people knowing that. Um, well, good deal. Well, Sal, that was a great show. And I may even call you on and see if you want to do that show sooner than later rather than make the audience wait a week because I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. Well, let's let's close out on this one and we'll talk off air. Maybe we can get the next one up within minutes if that's uh, within the time frame here and do a little double dose. But with our audience here, want to make sure that we thank you for your support. 20,000 plus. I think it's up to 21,000 now opened up Spotify, which I believe we're going to have another 20,000. So we really jacked up, which means sponsors are now entertaining our podcast as potential partnership with them. So that's a big step for our show, our big step for our network, a big tribute to our guys who put in a ton of work every week uh, to bring you great content, but we can't do it without you guys, without question. So want to thank you guys for that. And uh, audience, sit tight. We may be coming up with a part two where we hit on the distal loading and proximal loading, depending upon what my schedule and Sal's schedule is like today. But uh, Sal, anything less left to leave the audience with? I'm, I'm good. Uh, I would recommend everybody, again, who has kids that play on mostly turf to get that second pair of shoes and really, again, get away from the Gatorade. Make sure your kids are drinking when they're thirsty and try not to drum it into their heads that they need these ridiculously huge jugs of water for every little practice that they do. Uh, I think that's become uh, like Linus's blanket. It's become a a comfort thing that is not necessarily beneficial. Again, I'm not talking about the junction boys where we're not letting kids drink. You drink when you're thirsty. You don't have to force yourself to drink. So, and, and make sure you're doing it consistently long-term, just like with your workouts, they have to be good, over a long period of time, you need to be consistent. Just like with that, same thing with drinking your water. Yep. That's our rule and practices. I tell you, you guys are big boys and big girls. When you're thirsty, drink. We don't have that designated water break times. So you get over there, keep your water by what we're doing. But I laugh at our indoor sports uh, boys and girls 
they bring these jugs to practice like we're going to be practicing on the Sierra Desert for, you know, a month with how yeah. big these coolers are. So, but I don't remember ever bringing a water bottle to practice when I was a kid, for God's sakes. But, uh, you know, we are promoting eat when you're eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're tired, drink when you're thirsty. That should be our motto here. Absolutely. All right, Sal, thanks again for a great show. The Hot Corner with Coach Sal, episode 228. We promised you distal and proximal loading next time when we get here. One hour we gave you today. So hope you had you brought your notepads. Thanks again, Sal. Thanks, Dave.